Okay, now the we'll start off with a pasuk from from Yirmiyah Novi, which the Gemara discusses, and it's really taken from the Haftorah of the reading of Tisha B'av. So Sunday you will notice this pasuk being read. In fact, some of you may be familiar with this Gemara anyway, because we've already discussed it on many occasions. So it's taken from Yirmiyah Perak Tes. Yirmiyah, of course, was the prophet who actually witnessed the destruction of Yerushalayim, the destruction of the base of Mikdash. He's the one, therefore, that composed Megillus Eicha. Eicha was composed by Yirmiyah Novi. This is taken from the Haftorah of Tisha B'Av itself. Mi ho'ish, if you look in the middle, top, mi ho'ish ha'chocham v'yovinezos, who is the one, who is the man, wise, to understand this. Vasher diber pi Hashem. And he that knows the word of Hashem that spoken to him, a love, to him. Viagida. And he will then recount to us. Almo of the Horetz. Why was the land destroyed? Why was it desolated like a desert, like a wilderness? that no man passes uninhabited. What was the cause of the destruction of the land of Israel? Why was it destroyed? Why was it laid waste? Who knows this? Which wise person knows this? Who knows the word of Hashem that could relate it? Vayomer Hashem, very unusual usage of the Pasuk. Rather than, Vayomer Hashem, and Hashem said, Al ozvam torosi, they forsook my Torah. Asher nosati that I have placed before them. They didn't listen to the sound of my voice. And they didn't go in its way. They went after the dictates of their heart. And goes on and on. The Gemara points out, based on this, I didn't bother having the Gemara down here because because it's incorporated in all the rest of the text. But what's interesting is that the Shulchan Aruch itself incorporates into the Shulchan Aruch as well as into the Tur the actual Gemara that dis- discusses the destruction of the of the Beis HaMikdash in the Halach of Shulchan Aruch which is rather unusual because it's not dealing with Tisha B'av. It's not dealing with destruction. In fact, it comes from Orachayim, Simen Mem Zayin. It starts off with the following. Let's read the Torah on the left. Birchas HaTorah Ma'od Tzoruch One should take great care in saying Birchas HaTorah in the morning. In other words, before you learn, you have to be very careful to say Birchas HaTorah. In fact, I'm not going to go so much into it now because it's a topic in itself, but there is a Machloik Yisrishonim and the Ramban holds. He has in his glasses of the Rambam Sefer HaMitzvahs that Birchas HaTorah is one of the few brachas, other than benching, that it's a mitzvah deraisa. Because all brachas we know are rabbinically, are rabbinically ordained, are, are basically midrabonan. Birchas HaTorah is midraisa. It's a mitzvah say midraisa to make a bracha on the Torah. Vilna Gon actually holds that before you think in Torah, you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to uh, think in learning until you make a bracha. We don't pass like that. Most of the psaq and the Shulchan Aruch is not like that. That you're allowed to think in learning in the morning before you made Birch Satari, you're just not allowed to verbally learn it. That's the Psak of most Paiskim. Vilna Gaon held even thinking. 
As a result, there was, a, there was once a story, Reb Chaim Volozhner recounts, how I believe it must have been on a, um, I think it was Sukkot time, he once saw the Vilna going very depressed. How could the Vilna going be depressed on Sukkot, which is, which is considered Chag, Yom Sukhaseinu? He said this, this morning he woke up and he was so overjoyed because last night, in his sleep, he was given over the secrets of like 500 pshatim on a kasha that he had agonized over for a long time. And he was so overjoyed that he wanted to review them. And he violated his own halacha ruling that he was thinking and learning before he made the bracha. And as a result, he was punished instantly that all of it was removed from him. And he forgot all the Torah that he learned. And he was very depressed and dejected because of it. Later on, it was restored to him. But in any case, Birchas HaTorah Ma'od Sarach Lizarabos, says the Torah. You have to be very careful when you, that, that, to make a Birchas HaTorah in the morning. Kidi'isa bin Adar. And here he quotes an entire Gemara. And this is the Gemara that's going to be, that's going to be apropos to us. It's a Gemara in Daf Pe'alaf, Amar Aleph in Adarim. The Perak Eilu Nadarm. And listen to what the Gemara. We'll do the whole Gemara because he quotes the entire Gemara here. Why is it that you find very often that great sages and great rabbis don't have children that are great rabbis? Why is it that their children aren't Talmidei Chachamim? So the Gemara gives a number of explanations. One being that people shouldn't think that you'll only have great rabbis that result from families with great rabbis. And they'll say, listen, I'm not a rabbi and I don't stand a chance. The idea is that people have to realize that there's no Yerusha. It's not something that's inherited. It's open to everybody. Another shot is that they tend to then become a little bit too haughty. They become a little bit too uh, arrogant. <clears throat> and they think it's, it comes them. It goes with ease. But the Gemara gives one interesting explanation, which is the one that he's quoting over here. Ravina Amar, They don't say Birch before they learn Apparently they're so used to learning, it's in the family, it goes without saying. They, they don't bother saying Birchas HaTorah. Who are the children? The children. Or maybe the sages themselves. Rather strange, we'll have to see. But in other words, by doing that, you lose out on the opportunity of having your children become Talmud HaChachom. We'll see why. Domar Bidomar Rav. And now he quotes the following Gemara. Mai dechsiv mi ho'ish ha'chacham v'yovinesos. Who is the wise man who will understand this? And who will know the word of Hashem and relate it. Alma of the Ho'aretz. Why was the land destroyed? Says the Gemara, a very peculiar thing. Dover said this question, in other words, the question of why was the Beis HaMikdash destroyed, the first Beis HaMikdash we're talking about here, the time of Yirmiyah. Why was Eretz Yisrael destroyed? Why was Yishalayim destroyed? It was asked to the Chachomim, to the sages. They did not know the answer. It was even asked to the prophets. The prophets didn't know the answer. Even the Malachim didn't know the reason why it was destroyed. No one was able to come up with the right answer. Only Hashem was able to give the answer. By Yomer Hashem, as the Pasik says, Al Ozvam as Tarosi, Asherosati of Nem Loshem Bukolo In other words, if you examine the Pasik, 
you'll see that the Pasuk already implies this. Who is the wise man who will understand this? Who knows the word of Hashem that could relate it? In other words, who's wise? Chachomim were asked the question. The query was made of the Chachomim. They didn't know. It was then asked to the prophets. They didn't know. How do we know that they didn't know? Because the Pasuk starts off, Chachomim, Asher Pi Hashem knows what Hashem says and will say it. Go up above the Nevi'im. The, the, the angels, they always hear the word of God. Do they know? Apparently they didn't. How do we know that they didn't? Because the next post uses the unusual terms that we said earlier. Vayomer Hashem and Hashem said. In other words, Yirmiya is sort of like saying over in a rhetorical fashion. He's saying it as a rhetorical question. Are there any wise men that know? Are there any prophets that know? Are there any angels that know? Ultimately, Vayomer Hashem. Hashem himself had to be the one to say it. As if to say, as if to imply that the, that the secret of why Eretz Yisrael was destroyed was not so evident, was not so apparent. Nobody seemed to have known until only Hashem Himself, as opposed to lower levels of understanding, was able to say that the mystery of the destruction was something which only Hashem was finally able to say. So there's a lesson in it to us. What does it mean that only Hashem is able to say the reason for the destruction of the land? Why is it only Hashem? What was it? They forsook the Torah. They forsook the Torah. Hashem is the one that had to say that? Says the Gemara. Omar Rabbi Yudom Araf. Loimar she'en mevorchen batorat chilom. The land was destroyed because they didn't make birchas ha-Torah. That's what it says. They didn't make birchas ha-Torah. And therefore that's something only Hashem could have responded to. Nobody else would have known such a thing. Now, of course, there's a question over here. What does this actually mean? Didn't they have any other sins? But this passage in Yirmiya, which is the one that we're dealing with over here, which says, where Yirmiya rhetorically asks, who could tell me why the land was destroyed? Apparently not the Chachomen, apparently not the Nevi'im, only Hashem. And Hashem says they forsook the Torah. Says the Gemara, Hashem is criticizing them. They learned the Torah, apparently, but they didn't make birchas hatar. So what? So first of all, we have a number of questions. In fact, the, the, the basic questions we have is that we know we have another Gemara that this contradicts. The other Gemara says that the, that the first base of English was destroyed because of the sins of idolatry and, and other sins, some very severe sins. So how does this Gemara stim with the other Gemara? One Gemara seems to be saying that they had very major sins. This one says it's a minor, subtle point. So subtle, in fact, that nobody was able to hit on it, only Hashem had to say. Secondly, Taka, is this a reason to destroy the land of Israel and to destroy the base of Migdash because they didn't make Birchatar? Thirdly, I mean, the Pasuk seemed to say much more. They forsook the Torah. I mean, where would get Birchatar was? What is this Birchatar, which is a rather minor, subtle point that it's a violation of an essay, possibly. We said earlier that, um, that according to the Ramban and other Rishayim, it's a mitzvah Midaraisa to say Birchas Torah. I mean, that's a reason to destroy the land. What, what does it represent? And why would it be phrased by saying, they forsook my Torah? They forsook the Torah? They didn't forsake the Torah, they just make Birchas Torah. So, is this enough of a reason to destroy the land and, and this particular subtlety? So, this is something which, which there's a number of different comments on. And most of the a lot of the uh, discussion 
in different Mephoshim about what Tishabov is, is to try to understand what this Gemara is saying. What exactly is the sin of lack of Birchas HaTorah? Why is that enough reason to destroy the land? How does it fit into the other sins? In fact, just briefly, because that's not the part we're going to go into, the relationship between this and the other Gemara seems to be that this was the prime motivator as to why they came to the other sins. It's almost like, what is the root cause of all these sins? After all, people were studying Torah. Why doesn't the Torah protect them? How could they be led into sins? The Gemara tells us that if you study Torah, Torah protects you. We, we know that Torah casts a protective aura. Why then did they fall into these great sins such as idolatry? Also, forsaking the Torah, what's the relationship between forsaking the Torah and not saying birchas Torah? So why is this such a major thing? So this is something which we have to go into now. You gave us the answer to this answer last week. You were saying, I didn't know what Baraka was, the quid pro quo, you received it. So. Yeah. Birchas Torah is a little bit different though. Birchas Torah is different than Birchas Hanenen. That's, that's, uh, I mean, the issue of Birchas Torah is a very fascinating subject matter in itself. But, um, there's, the Ran in the dorm over there brings down a, a Rebbeinu Yonah. And it's quoted here in the Beis Yosef. So we're going to read the Beis Yosef who quotes now the Ran. So he says like this. Then we'll take a look at the Bach. Then we'll look at Mishnah Burah. When they start studying Torah, you're supposed to make a bracha. Sometimes neglect to make this bracha because they don't think in terms that we're starting to learn. And therefore, by not making the bracha, the bracha isn't fulfilled. What's the part of the bracha? In the bracha it says, It says, In the bracha, let us and our children become sages. So by forgetting and being neglectful of this bracha, they wind up not asking and requesting that their children should be sages. That's one shot. But then he quotes here from Rabbeinu HaGodl, who says another interesting reason. And this is something which we're going to have to see. Because not making a bracha, by not making a bracha on the Torah, it means that they're not studying the Torah with the proper intentions. They're not studying it for its own sake. It becomes an occupation. Rather than Torah being your preoccupation, it becomes an occupation. In other words, if you don't learn Torah properly, if you're learning Torah and you think of it as an axe to grind, or it becomes just another source of income. And this is something which would make sense to be more especially something that Talmidei Chachomim and their families can be prone to. Yeah, my father's a rabbi, he had a job, it's going to be my job. Torah takes on a whole different aura then. No longer am I studying Torah as being the word of Hashem that, I, that I'm trying to strive for. But yeah, of course I'm going to learn Torah. Why? My father was a rabbi. My grandfather was a rabbi. I come from a great line of rabbis. From a long line of rabbis. And they all had jobs. What am I going to be when I grow up? Also a rabbi. You know, my father's a rabbi. I'm going to yeshiva. 
You go to college, you go to trade school, you're going to get your master's and your PhD and your trade because you plan on going into the field of whatever it is to earn money. This is going to be my field of endeavor. If Torah just becomes a field of endeavor, an occupational thing, so then you're in violation of what it says in the Pirkei Ovis. Don't make Torah into a pick or an axe by which you're going to utilize Torah as a means of, of employment. In fact, we, we discussed this once on a number of occasions, how the Rambam says that's the reason why you're not supposed to really be taking salary for Torah, because you thereby demean the Torah, and it becomes a bizarre Torah. It demeans and degrades the Torah into just another means of occupation. So therefore, by not making birchas Torah is indicative, it's a symptom, so to speak, of the fact that the family of sages, and therefore, what, what the Gemara is saying is it's symptomatic. It doesn't necessarily even then mean that they didn't make the bracha, but they certainly didn't understand the content and the intent of the bracha. No longer did they view the Torah as being something special for fulfillment of life, but it's just another occupational thing. And sometimes you, you see it nowadays. Well, okay, well, what are you qualified to do? Huh, become a rabbi. You go to yeshiva, you become a rabbi. This guy goes to college to become a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. You're going to become a rabbi. If you demean the status of Torah learning, that a rabbi is just another occupation like being an accountant. So you don't deserve to have your children fulfilled as becoming great sages. You miss out on the whole thing. Now, based on this, we're going to come back to this theme again. He now quotes the Ran B'Shem Rebbein Yaina. The Krohach he says, where does the Gemara then mean to say that the land is destroyed because, because of the fact that they uh, didn't say Birchus Torah? The Pasuk says they forsook the Torah. What is forsaking the Torah, which means that you're not learning it at all, and you're not following it at all? What does that have to do with not merely saying Birchus Torah? He says, if that was the case, the Nisa Dalosim is Tarosi Kapashte Mashma. If it was literal that they just didn't study Torah at all and they forsook the Torah, law so then what was the question? You can ask the Chachomen, you can ask the Nevi'im, why is land destroyed? They don't seem to have the answer. How could they not have the answer? If you see, they they abandoned the Torah. So for abandoning the Torah, naturally, you're going to, we understand. But it was openly understood for your Kalafarish, very easy to understand. So what does it mean they abandoned the Torah? They studied the Torah, all right. They were Isaac in the Torah. They were preoccupied with Torah study. Therefore, the Chachom and the Nevi'im were in amazement as to the destruction. Only Hashem could answer, because only Hashem could go into the heart of the person and understand the motivating factor. In other words, you could show a design of something or other, and say, this is from, this is in keeping with the Torah, what's wrong, what's so terrible, we began with, that, you know, people say, what's so terrible, this follows the halacha, I'm going in accordance with halacha, but, it's hard for a human being to prove motivation about someone else, you can't tell someone, yeah, but I know what's motivating you, no one can say what lies, what lurks in the hearts of man, only Hashem knows what lurks in the hearts of man, and therefore, by Yomer Hashem, Hashem is the one that said, no, 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 your whole motivation, you have an agenda, you started, you're learning Torah, but it's not truly Torah that you're learning. Therefore, Hashem Himself has to say, you abandoned my Torah. 
only at Shapirsha Kodesh Baruchu, Ba'atzmo, she Yodeyam Amake Halev. He understood and he saw in the hearts of men, Shlohoyu Mavorchu Betarat Chila. And therefore the Gemara defines that as saying, they didn't make the bracha. Could be, it doesn't even mean literally that they didn't make the bracha. Maybe they made the bracha, but they certainly didn't understand the spirit of what the bracha is all about. Kaloimar, Shlohoysa Torah Chashuba Beinim Kolkach, that the Torah wasn't worthy in their eyes enough to make a bracha. The Torah was not viewed as something that deserves its own bracha. Kolkach Shiei Roy Levorechola, that it deserves the blessing. In other words, the Torah wasn't worthy in their eyes enough, sufficiently, that it deserves its own bracha. In other words, they didn't learn Torah lishma, and as a result, he says, they were mezalzel, and yeah, the bracha was nothing. That's what it means behind the That's what the rest of the pasuk means. They didn't go in its way. What does it mean? They didn't go in its way. They didn't follow the way of the Torah. And of the intentions of what the Torah is about, which is the study of Torah Lishma, was known as the Chosid, the pious one. Again, this Beis Yosef, this run rather, this Rabbeinu Yonah, gives us a little bit of an inkling, but it doesn't fully explain, we now have to explain it a little bit more. In fact, at this point, let's turn to page 2. To the Peace on the left. Divrei Haran, Magdilum Luchor After this run, it somewhat satisfies, but in, to a certain extent it intensifies the Kash even more. For not studying Torah Lishma, is that a reason to destroy the land? Yes, we understand now that that's not just a subtlety about not making the bracha. Not making the bracha is a symptom of a much, of a much more uh, pervasive illness, which is that your whole attitude to Torah is wrong. And therefore it's, it's not merely literally that they didn't make the bracha, but it now becomes representative of a bad <coughs> attitude. But the question still is, so is this attitude such a horrible thing? What's so terrible about the wrong <coughs> attitude? They didn't study Torah Lishma. So he says, Adarabah, we have a cash on this. Vare Omru, the Gemara Psachim, Dafnunam Bey says, Laolom Yasak Odom Betara Ube Mitzvah Shalolishma. A person should, should learn Shalolishma. Shalolishma is okay, it's acceptable. Shemitok Shalolishma Bolishma, the only way you ever get to studying Torah Lishma is only through the stepping, the stepping stone of studying Shalolishma. No one really gets the study of Torah Lishma. You start off, children, you have to bribe them. Even adolescents, you have to bribe them. Even adults, you have to bribe them. You have to bring Danish. If you don't bring Danish, you're not going to have people coming. Yes, but these Rabbonim were in a different Madriga. They were in Stein-Kaltish. But nevertheless, the Gemara still says as a recommendation that it's okay to learn Torah Shalom Lishma. It's the only way that you'll ever get to Lishma. So therefore, what the Ran is saying, although he at least explains for us that there was an attitudinal problem, more than just merely not making a bracha, but so what? Is this attitude so, so terrible? So he says like this. First of all, we have to explain this kasha from the Gemara Psachim. He says it's a mistake. And he quotes here from, from Chaim Brisker, who says this in the name of the Vilna Gaim. That when the Gemara says that it's okay to learn Shalom because that's the only way you'll get to Lishma, that's speaking about 
that you're learning Shalom Lishma as a means to the end of Shalom of Lishma. You'd like to study Torah Lishma. So your attitude really right now is proper in that sense. You know Torah is great. And you want to reach the level of Torah Lishma. I mean, we're all human. And your stepping stone, your ladder, your, your means to that end is the study Shalom Lishma. It's an emtsoi lahagiyah lalimud lishma. It's a means to reach learning lishma. But what about if you now take the entire Torah and you turn it into just another axe, just another occupation? That means you never want to learn Torah lishma. Your whole life is that Torah is just a means to a different end. No longer is Torah the end, but Torah is the means to the end. That's much different. That's not what the Gemara is saying. The Gemara is saying it's okay to learn Torah Shema in order that you should get to learning Lishma. But if you don't care about that, you overturn everything and you, you turn it all over, that your Shalom Lishma becomes the Lishma, becomes the end, and the Torah which is supposed to be Lishma becomes the Shalom Lishma, that's where the Mishnah says that if you make the Torah into like an axe, into an occupation, into a means that you're employing, similar to what, what it says in Hill, Vishtamash B'tagacholof, it's like a person that says, according to some of the, the Paiskim, it's referring to the study of Kabbalah for the purpose of utilizing it to uh, make miracles. Words, oh, you know, you heard about the fact that if you study Kabbalah, you'll be able to make a, a you know, you'll have veal. So you know what? I'm going to study Kabbalah in order that I should be able to make an eagle tilso, which like the Gemara and Sanhedrin brings down. So that's the way you can learn Torah. Because you want to get veal chops? Well done. I mean, that's, the, that's what you can learn Torah. If you do that, says the Mishnah. If you use the crown of Torah and you and you uh, substitute it, you should you should be substituted from the world of you should die. That means you're you're using it all wrong. That's where the Rambam says in the in the Mishnah Pirkeovis that says don't make it into a crown that you should go around arrogantly being conceited about, or turn it into an axe to grind, or make it into an occupation. Therefore, Talmud Chachomen, who bring up their children thinking that, yeah, of course you're going to be a rabbi. I mean, that guy's an accountant, and you're not qualified to be an accountant. He's going to college, you're going to go to yeshiva. And that's not learning shalom lishma, that the Gemara says that's okay. There's a different Gemara that says that if a person learns shalom lishma, it's better that his uh, placenta should have suffocated him. That's the Gemara says, if a person learns Torah shalom lishma, better that he should have been stillborn. He should have been born dead and his placenta should have been turned over on him and suffocated him. So that's the contradiction. One place he says, learning Shalom Lishmo is okay. That's the means to Lishmo. Torah says it depends what Shalom Lishmo means. If Torah is just going to promote your particular agenda that you have, then you've not only are you doing Shalom Lishmo because of your agenda, but now Torah becomes the means to your agenda. That means that you're, you're demeaning it. That's Chil Hashem. That's desecrating the Torah. That's like taking a safer Torah we learned the other day in the halacha that, that if a person uses psukim, it's a gemorah chelik, daf kofalaf, it's really a mission at the beginning of chelik, that he who uses the Torah as part of an incantation loses his share in the world to come. What's so terrible? You say a pasik that should ward off illnesses? It depends. But if you're going to start employing it like mumbo jumbo, abracadabra, and Torah just becomes another abracadabra, that you wave a wand over it, or the case is, if you take a safe Torah, and you put it on top of the child so they should be able to fall asleep. I mean, I guess they'll suffocate if you do that. But in any case, or you put film under his bed so they shouldn't have nightmares. So you've taken Torah, you've taken mitzvahs, 
and now it just becomes another means of mumbo-jumbo abracadabra. So you lose your share in Olam Haba because you've overturned the entire concept of what Torah is supposed to be. Sure, you're learning Torah, and you're going to go to the school, and you're going to college. But if you're going to college, and you're taking Judaic studies courses, in order that you should become a professor of Judaic studies, that's not learning Torah Lishma. That's learning Judaic studies. The other guy is learning Greek philosophy. The other one is learning Greek mythology, Homer and the Odyssey, and I'm learning Torah. If Torah becomes by you the equivalent of Homer's Odyssey, then that, that's a major problem. That's not called learning Torah. You have your goal, and Torah is now a means to that. So not only is Torah becoming a means to a different agenda, but Torah now becomes reduced and diminished. That's the Chil Hashem that the Rambam says in, in Hilchus Talmud Torah, that if a person turns Torah as a crown to be able to exploit people with, or as a means to be able to, to become um, you know, powerful, or for employment purposes, that's Chil Hashem V'kovim Oradas. And the Rambam goes to, to, to great lengths to say what a Chil Hashem this is, and how you're destroying the light of Torah, and, and the Var Hashem Boza. For that you lose your Olam Habo. So therefore, the Vilna going... It's a very interesting point that you're saying that Torah could become an Avodazar. Very interesting point. We're going to get to that later. We're going to see how Torah could become an Avodazar. We'll see that. So therefore, and he quotes here the Gemara in the Dorm Samach Beis, the Chayim Lufurish the Gemara, Asay Devorim L'Shem Poalam, the Dabir Bohem L'Shmom, Al Tasim Atorah L'Zgadol. Don't turn Torah into a crown by which you could, you know, lord over people. Let it not become a pick or an axe or a shovel that you're using Torah like a shovel to dig with. Balshatzar was of course the third of the Babylonian kings after the destruction of the temple. He's the one that Daniel said the handwriting on the wall means that you're going to be destroyed. What was Balshatzar's major sin? That he took the clay kodesh. He took the vessels of the Beis Hamikdash, and he used them to party with, to drink wine. So he says, Balshatzer, who took the clay Kodesh from the Beis Hamikdash, and he made them into cups of wine to drink it. Now, all he did was he nishtamish beklei Kodesh klei chol. He took clay Kodesh and he made clay chol out of it. Took holy vessels, made it into mundane vessels, and he was uprooted from the world. He who takes the crown of Torah, and he takes the holy crown of Torah and turns it into a mundane, secular type of a crown, that's a greater sin than what Balshatzer did, you'll certainly be uprooted from the world. That's this principle. That's what the Rambam says to explain the mission in Pirkei that says don't turn Torah into a crown or into an axe. That's what the Rambam says in, in Mishnah Torah, in Hilchas Talmud Torah. That's this Gemara in the Dorm, Dav Samach Beis. He says, this then is really what the Ran is saying. It's not just a subtlety that they're learning Torah Shalom Lishma. But as a result, they demean the, the greatness of what Torah is and this attitude problem. Although you can never prove to someone that you're using Torah as an agenda. That's why the Chachom can't answer it. That's why the Nevi'im can't answer it. But Hashem who reads the heart knows what you're doing with the Torah. They didn't even desire to learn Torah Lishma. Not making a bracha means that Torah is not an end. There's no desire to learn Torah Lishma. Therefore, they were mezalzal in Birchas HaTorah. That's why the Pasuk uses the expression, 
We said, how could the words also in Torah say they abandoned my Torah to only mean the subtlety they'd make a bracha? That's called forsaking and abandoning the Torah. If you're not making birchas Torah, or as we're saying now, it doesn't even have to be literally they didn't make birchas Torah. But the concept of what birchas Torah represents, that's called abandoning the Torah. My Torah that I've given you, you've abandoned. Let me answer your question a little differently. Why would someone learn Torah if it's Shalom Shema, this kind of Shalom Shema? Well, we already have the answer in terms of rabbis' children why they would do it. That's really what the Gemara begins with. It means the rabbi's son is learning the Torah because he knows you guys need shiurim. So you go, you know what? Uh, you went, you're a doctor, you're a podiatrist, you're a this, you're a... I'm going to become a rabbi. So... What's motivating me to learn Torah then if it's Shlomo Shmo? It's to be able to give shiurim. It's to be able to get a salary. Hey, you know, the rabbi that isn't a bad salary. Make hundred thousand dollars, two hundred thousand dollars. There are many people that will learn Torah and go to college and take Judaic studies courses or go to, because that's the field of endeavor that they want to go into. What about all these women that want to go into the smicha programs? Why are they learning Torah? Ah, don't get the Shmo. I can't answer that. Only Hashem knows what's in the hearts of a person as to are they learning it for a different agenda other than the one that they're supposed to be learning it for. So you ask me a question, why were they learning Torah? I can't go back 3,000 years or 2,500 years and say what other motivations would motivate them to learn Torah. I don't know. But I do know now that there are many, many people that are in violation of this principle and they're learning Torah and you're going to say, but they're learning Torah. Shoal Chachonen, L'Nevim. No one was able to answer. We began in the beginning with a shul design. That's what, we, that's what we started off with. Where a shul design is following the halacha perfectly. Even very from not only one mechitza, but two mechitzas. One for the men, one for the women. But what's motivating you? Why are you going to spend four million dollars to make this kind of a shul? What's motivating you? Is it from kite? Is it because you want to follow the Torah? Or is something else over there that you're trying to do? Or is it a combination thereof? But you could see people do a lot of Torah and mitzvahs. And it becomes only an axe or a means to be employed and utilized to further a goal. And there are many instances of this. We don't even have to go to all the current events. But, you know, that, that organization, that they're trying to, they're utilizing the Torah in order to be able to advance male chauvinism in that particular case. But everything, Torah now becomes the means that Shalom Bayes organization yeah, whatever it is uh, good they're following the Torah they're, they're from the right wing this is true I mean this is a fault with the left wing or with the right wing and we'll see shortly that this is a fault on both sides if you're trying to promote an agenda and you're utilizing Torah for that you're demeaning the covet of the Torah that's the worst sin that's the biggest Chil Hashem you're, this Shalom Bayes organization is going around promoting the Shalom Bayes what a wonderful cause and they're saying, but the Torah says this, and the Torah says you can take concubines, and the Torah says you can marry off your daughters, Kedusha Kitana. But what's pushing them? Are they trying to further Torah? Or are they trying to... They're a bunch of misogynists. Or is it money? Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's misogynists. Whatever it is. Sometimes it's a feminist agenda. But there are a lot of people employing the Torah and learning Torah. I mean, a guy goes into, uh, into a Judaic studies program. A guy goes into the JTS. What's motivating him? Is it that he wants to further the cause of God and Torah? Or is it that he wants a child? So that's really what we said in the beginning that the Beis Yosef brings down as to the relationship between lack of bracha 
and um, and why Talmidei Chacham don't have children that are Talmidei Chacham? Because they are prone to this to this flaw, and it's a very serious one. It's not a minor thing. It's overturning the entire idea of why, why you're learning. You could spend all those years in yeshiva, but you know why you're in yeshiva and why you're in kailo? Because you have no way out, and you don't know what else to do. There are people sitting and learning Torah. I'll criticize now on the right rather than on the left, from the right wing. There will be people that are in Kailo because they have nothing else to do. There are people like that. They have nothing else to do. They're not qualified to do anything else. They're not capable of doing anything else. This is their only means of employment or their only means of finding any kind of doing something. So they're learning Torah because they have nothing else to do with themselves. That's, that's not That's the meaning of Kavra Torah. Why are you learning Torah in Israel? I want to avoid the army. I don't want to go to the army. That's why you're learning Torah. There are people like that. There are people in yeshivas, in Eretz Yisrael, that are only in the yeshivas and in there because there's nothing else they can do. And they can't get a normal job because you can't get a normal job unless you go through the army. So in order to avoid the army, they have to avoid jobs and they have to stay forever and ever and ever learning and snoring. So why are they learning? Learning became now an axe, a shovel. They go around, I'm learning Torah, give me money. Why are you learning Torah? I gotta avoid the army. And I'm stuck. They're in a rut. That's a terrible thing. Alma of the Oretz. Why is the land being destroyed? Why is it so being destroyed? This is not something that I could answer. This is not something that a Novi could answer. I see a from person he's sitting and learning Torah. By Yomer Hashem. Only Hashem could answer that. Al Ozva Mestarosi. And he uses very strong language. You've abandoned my Torah. That's not Torah anymore. What you're doing is you're just finding a means of employment. It's Judaic studies. It's no longer Torah that you're learning anymore. <coughs> so you ask me a question, why would someone learn Torah Shalom Lishma? Believe me, I could find you many, many reasons why. I just gave you some right-wing ones. We'll go back to some left-wing ones later. But I'll be willing to tell you on both sides that this is a major problem. Hashem told Yirmiyot, they have abandoned my Torah. That means if you're learning Torah to avoid the army, or you're learning Torah because you're, because you're unqualified, and you're uneducated, and you're incapable, or you're lazy, or you have nothing else to do with yourself, and it's the only thing you can do, and it winds up being... Well, I, I said we're sticking on one side right now. We'll get to the other side later. Social statement? No. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people from, from a home, yeah, they want the kid form. can't learn really good. They send them to Lakewood anyway to make a social statement that he's learning, he's sitting and learning. He's not ready to, half those guys aren't ready to Well, one second, I, I'm not ready to condemn the people or the amount of people. I'm just saying that the idea exists. So you're right, right away ready to apply it. I'm not going to apply it to people. I don't know. I don't know people. Bayomer Hashem, only Hashem could say that, only He reads the hearts. But what I could say, though, is that the concept is certainly there. That there are people that because there's not anything else they could do, so they're forced into a certain mold, and especially it's prone by Tamir Yechachom. So the Gemara is telling a tremendous psychological insight with that. When you think about it, the Gemara doesn't, doesn't cut corners over here. The Gemara doesn't try to cover things up. It says, why is it that Tamir Yechachom don't merit having the brach of Torah perpetuated? Because they are prone to this mistake. That's what the Beis Yosef brings down. The mistake of thinking of Torah as an occupational, as an occupational stepping stone. But if you at least, uh, from the way we're understanding right now, Lishmo, Rabbi Chaim Vlozhin discusses what Lishmo is. 
I'm not going to go into that. What we do understand is by saying what Shalolishma is, where you're taking the Torah is no longer as being what is, in a second we'll see the Bach. The Bach will give us a little bit of a feeling of what Lishma is. But Lishma for its own sake, Shalolishma not for its own sake. Yeah. So therefore, now says Revel Yalapian that we could understand that what the Ran and the Rebbein Yoyin are saying are not just a subtle attitudinal change. This is a major demeaning of the Torah. It's major desecration. It's Chil Hashem, it's Dvar Hashem Boza. And therefore you could actually say, Al Ozvam Es Torosi, that you've forsaken my Torah. Then he quotes the following, I'll just briefly do the next part. But why is it that it led to the other major sins? Why does the Torah protect and cast its protective aura over the people that study it, even if they're not doing it with the right motivation? Don't we have a principle based on the Gemara in Saita that says that 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 Torah protects a person even when he's not studying it? So, he says like this. He quotes here the Gemara that says that you know, you all know the story of David Amelach. David Amelach, in his old age, clothing didn't warm him. So the Gemara says, why didn't clothing warm him? Warm him? So the Gemara says, because if you if you make fun, if you demean something, then that thing won't protect you. It won't warm you. Where did David Amelach demean clothing? He did it when he cut off the corner of of the cloak of Shaul and Melech saying, hey, I could have killed you, but I didn't. And he cut off his cloak and he sent it to him. So it was a form of like, hey, you know, he did an act that later on brought the repercussions that clothing no longer warm, warmed him. HaKadosh Baruch who allows clothing to warm people if you respect it. If you degrade it and demean it, then it won't protect you. It won't warm you. Therefore, he says, says we took blusher. Alma of doors. Why was the land destroyed? How come Torah didn't protect them? Because if they demean Torah, Torah is not going to protect them either. That's why Rebbeinu Yoyinah says Shalom Hoisa Torah Chashuvu Beinayim. The words of Rebbeinu Yoyinah that we said earlier was Torah was no longer important in their eyes. This, of course, is something only Hakadosh Baruch Hu knows. But just as the teva, the nature of physical things is that if you don't respect them, they won't help you. The same thing is going to be true with Torah as well. If you demean the Torah, if you're mezalzal in Torah, and you don't make the bracha, Torah is not going to protect you, it's not going to save you either. And that's why they sank to all these other levels. The bottom line is you could learn Torah and still be mevazal the Torah. And therefore doesn't protect them. With this already, we could now understand what the Ran was saying. It's not just a minor, subtle point. It only looks subtle to the naked eye, but it's not subtle at all. Mevaza means to mock, to demean, to make fun of. Bizarre. Let's take a look, because you asked about what the Shmo is. Let's take a look at the Bach. And again, this is unusual, because this is all in the Shulchan Aruch. The Shulchan Aruch is very halachic. At this point, they all wax very eloquent and agodic. And here's a Bach that's almost semi-mystical. Says the Bach, 
Shakodesh Baruch Hu marked the long day Torah filo oiskin batuva me'enon zirin levorach batarat chilah. Hakodesh Baruch Hu will be angry and be particular against those even they study a great deal of Torah they don't make a bracha. Vikalit matu lomiyatsa kazeis milfon of shlanishim ba'inish gadol v'ram kizeh al shlabirchu batarat chilah. Why would Hashem punish them so greatly merely for such a minor sin? Shaluchur aver kalitz a small minor sin v'nira. The kavanasa is borach may oilam hoisa. Hashem's original intent, that we should study and involve ourselves in Torah in order that we should join and become one and unite and fuse our neshamas with the Torah and Hashem and become as one. And if we do that, Hashem gave us the gift of Torah in order that our neshamas and our bodies should physically even cleave with our 248 limbs and our 365 sinews into the 248 mitzvahs and 365 negative commands of the Torah. We unite and become one with the Torah. If we learn Torah in that manner, if we would actually do that, we become a base of Mikdash. If you remember, the Shachanti B'Salcham, Hashem says, "V'osuli mikdash v'shochanti b'salcham." Says Chazal, it doesn't say v'shochanti b'salcha, but v'shochanti b'salcham. Make a mikdash that I should dwell in their midst, not make a mikdash that I should dwell in its midst, in the base of mikdash, but in their midst. Into the heart of each and every Jew becomes a base of mikdash. The base of mikdash ultimately is just a physical representation of a joining together with a spiritual base of Mikdash. But ultimately the Mishkan, you know the famous song, Mishkan Bilvavi Evna. I will build a Mishkan in my heart. The heart is the seat of the Mishkan. And therefore Hashem wants the Shechina to reside, the Shachanti B'Salcham, the Kirbam. Shehoi Sashchina Mamish B'Kirbam. Ki Heichel Hashem Heimah. Which is, what is prophecy? Prophecy emanates from the Luchos. But prophecy that the human should be the prophet. The Shekhinah was visibly present on the Mikdash. It was supposed to be in each person's heart. According to some of Farshim, originally, if not for the sin of the eagle, there would not have been a Mishkan because it would have been diffused throughout everybody. Only after the sin of the eagle did they say that you're not worthy of it. We need one centralized location where people could come and recharge their batteries. Into their hearts, the Shekhinah would have resided. And as a result, the entire earth, the entire physical universe that we have would have, would have had the light of Hashem emanating from it and the world would have been a spiritualized place as well. Heaven and earth would have merged as one and sanctity would have been infused in the earth as well. And there will be one Mishkan. What does it mean, one Mishkan? That the earthly Mishkan and the heavenly Mishkan would be one Mishkan. And the sanctity of the Mishkan is only because the heavenly Mishkan is in it. In fact, one of the reasons why they say that we say Yizkar on Yom Tov is to represent a miracle that used to occur when the Jews came to the base of Nikdash. All the Jews came to the base of Nikdash and they were very crowded. 
and they were standing in the courtyard, and all of a sudden they'd hear the name of Hashem uttered by the Kohen God, and they'd all bow down. But if you're all crowded, where's the room to bow down? Said, Miraculously, you're crowded, standing, squeezed in, but there's nothing for everybody to bow down. How did that miracle happen? So we know that the closer you get to spirituality, the more the laws of time and space no longer apply. Right? The, the Oron, the, there's no place. You know, we won't discuss that. The closer you get into the base of Migdash, to the Kodesh Kadoshim, they would measure from the front of the Oron to the wall and from the side of the other Oron to the wall and it would be equal to the entire room. It didn't take up space. Laws of time and space, we know this to be true in, in physics as well, right? The closer you get to, to light, to the speed of light, time, space, you know, speeds, all of these things, even laws of addition and subtraction break down, right? You go to the speed of light and you go faster than relative to the person that's traveling at the speed of light. The other person's going faster relative to the person outside of it. They're going at the same speed. And how is that possible? Sounds miraculous to me. You, you, it's a good way of going on a diet because the closer you get to the speed of light, you become infinitely thin and long, right? I mean, but all of these things happen. What, what does it all mean? But this is what scientists say. Physicists say this. The closer you approach light, the more things become, become losing time and space. Becomes, it's almost as if spirituality and the physical join as one. The two worlds join. It's like the boundary, the border between spirituality and physical. That's why we always refer to things as light. You know, because our musik, our understanding of something in our world which seems spiritual is light. That's the speed limit of the universe, right? The boundary of the universe is light. And that's sort of like the borderline. What is light? Is it a wave? Is it a particle? It's, it's everything. So, in, in this sense, so how is the Beis Amigdash able to perform that miracle? Because the Beis Amigdash on high would join with the Beis Amigdash on earth and as a result, it will become a semi-spiritual, physical place. And as a result, these things occurred. It was the joining of oneness. So to commemorate that, we say on Yom Tov Yiskar, because on Yom Tov, the, the heavenly, the Nishamas, enter into the base of Migdash on high. We are in the shuls of the base of Migdash here. The two fuse and join as one. That's how all of these things occur. But in any case, that's what it means when Mishkan becomes one. They join, they fuse as one. Avalata, once you violate this principle and you break the connection and you don't learn Torah thinking in terms of achieving this, but you're learning the Torah for care. Torah becomes just a means to get somewhere else for a different agenda, for Gashmias, for your own pleasure, for your own occupation, to make money or to become great, or to become haughty and conceited and arrogant, or to show your, your wisdom, to sound good, to do it for honor. And no longer do you want to join as one, and become part of the Kedusha and the Ruchnius of Torah, and to draw the Shechina from heaven down to the earth, to make it as one. And no longer do you want your Neshama to join in to this merging, and this fusion with the Shechina, You thereby break, you make a pirut, you cause this break. And this split between sanctity and physical, and the shechina goes up to heaven, and goes back, and the earth becomes desolate, and becomes without any kind of spirituality. It becomes gashmias. The earth becomes purely physical, with no kedusha. That's what causes the horror. 
In fact, if you remember, we once mentioned it very often in the name of Chaim Volozhner, how Titus, what did Titus destroy? Nothing. He just broke down the shell. I gave you always the example from my, my Sukkot decorations. You, know, you take those gourds, those pumpkins and everything, and I put them away, and next year it's still there. It looks, looks perfect. The problem is if you squeeze it a little too hard, it's only just the outer shell, the whole inner core rotted away and becomes like dust. It's like an eggshell, it crumbles. On the surface, it looks, looks beautiful. It looks like a fresh gourd. Take those pumpkins and gourds. A year later, they'll look fresh like brand new. But they're not. Just a shell of what they were. They crumple into dust, into nothingness. The base of Migdash looked like it's still there. The Jews destroyed the inner core base of Migdash with their sins. The base of Migdash Shalmail was already destroyed with the sins. The Shekinah was no longer there. At that point, people could come along and destroy it. But Chazal say, he only smashed ashes. What he broke was already broken. He never broke something that was. He broke something that wasn't. He broke a broken object. That's all the base of Mignesh was. In other words, the true base of Mignesh was destroyed by the Jews. The true base of Mignesh was destroyed when the Jews with their sins took away the Kedusha. All that was left was this external shell which easily crumples up. Therefore, the earth is left bereft of any kind of holiness. Alma of the Horetz. If you don't learn Torah like that, so you have nothing left, it's easy to destroy. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar could then come and destroy the base of Mikdash because the Jews already destroyed it. How do you destroy it? By making the split between the spiritual and the physical. And that causes the Horbin. That's what it means. They abandoned my Torah and they didn't follow in it. In other words, they didn't go in the way of what the Torah was trying to do, which is this joining and merging of the spiritual with the physical. They didn't want to go up these levels. That's what Lishma means. To try to go on this, on this journey higher and higher in order that your Nishama should join as one with the Kedushas Hatara. They didn't go in this. In other words, they didn't learn Lishma. And therefore, when they began the study of Torah, they didn't make the bracha that thanks Hashem, saying, what a wonderful gift you gave us, that you allowed it to join with us, that you are joining Remember we said, what is the bracha that you make when you see a sage? When you see a secular sage, you say that you imparted from your wisdom to flesh and blood. Asher nosan me The bracha that you make when you see a Torah sage is asher cholak me That you have a portion from your wisdom to those that fear you. And we said this once before that Torah is, an, is, a, is a constant connection to Hashem. It's cholak. It's not split from Hashem. It's joined to Hashem. Making a bracha means we're thanking Hashem for giving us this light that's planted within us that gives us the opportunity to join with Torah, to join with Hashem. That's what Birchus Torah means. If you don't make a bracha and you're not thanking Hashem for the gift of Torah that allows us to cleave and to merge and to join with Him, into the Kedusha, into the Shechina. That's the Bochar Bonu, He gave us the Torah, in order that our Neshama should be Mizdabek, and we thereby are married in the Shechina B'Kirbeinu. That's what they didn't go in, to study Torah on this. And therefore the punishment was that the Shechina departed, that the spirituality departed, the Shechina left the earth, and then the earth was left abandoned. You abandon the Torah, Hashem abandons the earth, and therefore becomes like a desert, it becomes a shell, it becomes destroyed.
The Mishnah Berurah says, regarding what the Shulchan Aruch says, you have to be very, very careful to make Birch Satara. You should not learn until you make a bracha. But make the blessing with joy. Why was the land destroyed? That although they studied Torah, as long as the Jews involved in Torah study, Hashem forgave their sins. Therefore, they didn't know why did Hashem destroy the land if they were studying Torah. But Hakadosh Baruch Hu, who searches out the hearts, knows. Even though they studied the Torah, but they didn't study the Torah Torah, but they studied the Torah the same way they studied other forms of wisdom. They studied art. You know, he just said over the story about the forest fire how it skipped and went around the yeshiva, but it burnt down the museum to a crisp. I don't remember where it was, he said over there, but there was a recent forest fire in Eretz Yisrael, near Yishalayim. It went around the yeshiva miraculously, but the museum had burnt down. If to you, yeshiva is the equivalent of a museum, that's what the Nazis did. The Nazis wanted to make the museum of Judaism. Now they're an old culture. Torah, Judaism, it's a museum. That's all it is. If Torah to you is a museum, you go to, to the Met, and you go to the Guggenheim, and you go to the Museum of Natural History, and then you come to the Yeshiva to learn as well. If that's all Torah is, then of course there's no bracha to be made for it. You're learning Torah the way you learn other forms of wisdom. Therefore they didn't make a bracha. The Torah was not worthy. Therefore the Torah didn't protect them. Therefore says the Mishnah Berurah, one should be very careful and give thanks and praise to Hashem that He chose us and He gave us His glorious Torah. This Beis HaLevi is in Parshas Mishpatim. Parshas Mishpatim is where we find that the Jews said Nasev and Nishma. Nasev and Nishma. The Gemara in Shabbos says, When the Jews said Nasa before Nishma, 600,000 angels came and gave two crowns to every Jew. One for Nasa, one for Nishma. So he asks Akasha. If they were given the crowns, one for Nasa, one for Nishma, then the Gemara should have said, when the Jews said Nasa and Nishma, they were given two crowns, one for Nasa, one for Nishma. The Gemara doesn't say that. The Gemara says, by preceding Nasa before Nishma, they were given two crowns. It's only for preceding it. If it's for preceding it, why get two crowns? They only did one thing. They said Nasa before Nishma. That's one crown. So what's the two crowns? One for Nasa, one for Nishma. It should have said that when they said Nasa and Nishma, sounds like it's only because of the Hakdoma. That's why they got the two crowns. So why two? So he says an interesting thing. Why is it that the Jews said Nasa before Nishma rather than Nishma before Nasa? So he quotes here the Zayar. The Zayar says, Nasa buuvdin tovin, Nishma bepizgomin doraisa. In other words, Nasa means they're accepting upon themselves the mitzvahs of the Torah, the kiyuma mitzvahs. Nishma means that they're accepting the study of the Torah. Nasa means mitzvahs. Nishma is the study of Torah. So he says like this. When a person studies Torah, there are two ways of studying Torah. One is to know what to do. You have to know. It's a means to an end, meaning the mitzvahs. It's not a means to an end for employment, chas v'shal. But you got to learn Torah 
to know the mitzvahs. So one way that you're learning is you want to know practical. You're studying Torah, you go, I want to know what am I supposed to do. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. And that's all you're interested in the study of Torah, to know what to do. If you're not going to know what to do, if you're not going to study Torah, even women that have no chiv, no obligation of Torah study, nevertheless, women have to keep most of the mitzvahs of the Torah, most of them. They have to keep the mitzvahs, and therefore they have to know what to do. And therefore, although they don't have an obligation to study Torah, but it's brought down in Shulchan Aruch, that they do study for the purpose of knowing what to do. The difference between men and women is the following. Women only learn Torah as a means to know what to do. Men have a separate obligation. And therefore, they have one level above, which is, when women learn, they are not doing a real, genuine mitzvah of study of the Torah. It's not ob- at least, they're doing it, but they're not obligated to it. It's only a means of mavo l'kima mitzvahs. Therefore, the limud, hatar by women, is only as a means, as a mavo l'atachos, as a means to an end, being kima mitzvahs. It's not a purpose in and of itself. By men, limud atar is a mitzvah say by itself. In its own right. It's a tachlis in itself. It's its own mitzvah. Study is its own mitzvah, not as a means. Just like putting tefillin on is a mitzvah, study of Torah is its own mitzvah. Therefore it comes out that there are two different aspects to the study of Torah by men. One as a means to know what to do, and one as an end in itself. He says with this we can understand the Gemara in Menachas Tzadik Tesla days, where Ben Doma, the nephew of Rabbi Shmuel, says, I study the whole Torah. Is it okay for me now to forget about Torah study and do and study Greek wisdom instead? To which he said, find out a time which is not part of the day or the night because it says you got to study Torah day and night. What's going on? What he's saying is, this was his question. If my purpose of studying Torah is to know the Torah, in order to know what to do, sign over all. I'm Yaitzim. I know Kualatari Kula. Now can I involve myself in other studies? In other words, it's Torah study in itself only for um, as a means to an end of knowing what to do and not more than that. You know, if the purpose of Torah study is merely to know how to do the mitzvahs, I no longer have to learn Torah anymore because I've already reached that point. To which he responded, no, you have a mitzvah in itself. The study of Torah is an independent mitzvah. Therefore, if Klai Yisrael would have said, Nishma before Nasa, then the implication would have been, we're going to study Torah, because Nishma, as the Zohar says, means study of Torah. Nasa means the performance of mitzvahs. So then the study of the Torah would have meant for the purpose of the mitzvahs. Because obviously you have to learn before you're going to do it. So Nishma preceding Nasa would have meant we're going to study, and then we're going to perform. That's all it would have meant. It would have been a means to an end. So it would have really been one acceptance of Torah. On the other hand, by saying Nasa first and then Nishma, Nasa already contains within it implicitly that I'm going to have to know what to do. So I'm obviously going to have to learn Torah in order to know what to do for the Nasa. If that's the case, what is the second Nishma? If you say Nasa before Nishma, then what does Nishma mean? Nishma could only then mean independent Torah study. I'm going to study Torah even after the Nasa for the sake of Nishma alone. 
Therefore, by saying Nasa before the Nishma, it comes out that both aspects of Torah study were, were mentioned, and therefore you get the two crowns. With this, he now explains in a beautiful manner our Gemara. The Gemara in the Dorm says they didn't make a bracha on the Torah, that's why the land was destroyed. What does that mean? See, so quotes again the famous Ran that we said that the Torah wasn't important enough in their eyes to make a bracha on it. They didn't study Torah Lishma. That's the Ran, right? That's the gist of the Ran. Torah wasn't important enough for them to make a bracha. In other words, they didn't study Torah Lishma. So he says, according to his explanation, it comes out very simple. They understood Torah as a means to an end, even to the point of to know what mitzvahs to do. If that's the case, the Gemara Menachas Dav says, there's a rule about brachas. You only make a bracha on the Gemar HaMitzvah, on when you're fulfilling the end result of the mitzvah, not for the means of a mitzvah. For example, you make a bracha for sitting in a sukkah. That's the mitzvah. You don't make a bracha for building a sukkah. Because although building a sukkah is necessary, but since the mitzvah is only completed by sitting in the mitzvah, so you make a bracha for the Gemara mitzvah, for the completed mitzvah, not for the hechshra mitzvah, not for the means employed to do it. You make a bracha on a brismila, you don't make a bracha on sharpening the knife. You don't make a bracha for writing tefillin, only for laying of tefillin. For writing mitzvah, only for kviyas mitzvah. If Torah is a means only to know what to do for the mitzvahs, then Torah you wouldn't make a bracha on. Halachically. Because Torah is only a means, you don't make a bracha on it. Only if Torah is an end in itself could you make a bracha on Torah. Therefore, by them not making a bracha on the Torah was an indication that they didn't view Torah as an end in itself worthy of a bracha. It's just a nice, interesting halachic chap on it. What do we see from all of this though? We see from all of this that the major sin involved over here was one of where the Torah becomes a means to something else. To a greater or lesser degree, Lishma, Shalom, Lishma, however one defines it. But certainly, the greatest Chil Hashem is when you use the Torah as an axe, where you use the Torah to promote an agenda other than Torah. Now we'll talk about what you said earlier about the Torah being Avodazar. How could Torah be Avodazar? Or we could inject Avodazar into the Torah. The Turn to page 2. On the right, we have, I have an excerpt here from the Bayez Hazman of Ruven Rezovsky. Ruven Rezovsky was a son-in-law by Rav Borch Ber Leibowitz, who was the Talmud Movik of Rav Chaim Brisker, Rosh Hashivin Kamenetz. Ruven was also Rosh Hashivin Kamenetz. He came to America. He was the head of the Moetz's Gedolei Torah, the Yoshev Rosh of the Moetz's Gedolei Torah, in the 40s, before of Aaron Kotler, before of Moshe Feinstein, he's the one that sort of like set the perspectives of Torah Jewry in America. And this Sefer, Bayez Hazman, is his viewpoint on many, many issues. Zionism, this, uh, many different things. And this excerpt is just beautiful in just an understanding of how we view things. We'll start from the top, and we'll read through it. It reads rather quickly. And this is, by the way, a very, very important lesson about education and how we set up schools and educational institutions. He starts off by saying, Our love of Eretz Yisrael. Yes, we love Eretz Yisrael. All Jews are Zionists. But our love of Eretz Yisrael is the same love that Rabbi Yudah Levi, that the Ramban had, 
that all of the Goonim and Gedolenu and Ketanenu, when they came to Eretz Yisrael, they kissed the soil itself. And they were Moisir Nefesh to come to it in order to dwell in it. Why? Because Hashem chose it. This is the abode of Hashem. This is the holy land that Hashem chose. In other words, Zionism is not something apart from the Torah. It's all part of our goal of coming close to Hashem. As we saw earlier from the Bach, what the Torah is all about, this is all part of it. It's not Torah Ulumius. That's the motto of, of Mizrahi. Torah and nationalism. There's no such thing. Torah and nationalism. Or Torah Vavoda. Torah Vavoda. Torah and labor. Torah and work. It's all, it's part of Torah. Actually, what, what Torah represents also, we have to understand what Torah is all about as well. But that, that's what we love. He says, furthermore, our love of the Hebrew language, Avas L'Shenenu HaKadoshim, that we've kept for thousands of years and we haven't forsaken it is only because this is the holy language of the angels of Hashem is the holy language of the Torah this is the language that Hashem created the world in it this is the language that we can only understand Torah then he goes on in the next paragraph Yiddish what's so great about Yiddish why do we why do we extol Yiddish our love of Yiddish and our and our observance of it this is the language that unites the Jews and, and protects us from assimilation and intermarriage. This is the language that ties us together in a bond, a Yiddish bond. And because this is the language that has become sanctified for hundreds of years, spoken by our holy ancestors, they have injected into Yiddish in the way they changed the German into Yiddish. M- many of our concepts, many of our, our thoughts, many of our attitudes, many of our, our character, every language takes on the character of the people that speak it. Whether it's English, whether it's German, whether it's Russian, Hungarian, Arabic, a language becomes the, the expression of the character of the people that speak it. Yiddish becomes the expression of the Yiddish Neshama. The neshama, the Jewish soul, expresses itself in Yiddish. Therefore, Yiddish is a wonderful language, he says, because we've injected into it all of our our expressions, our thoughts, all of our feelings. No other language has it. No other language could express the soul of the Jewish people because they express the soul of other people. But then he says like this, this powerful paragraph. He says, after saying this introduction, it's all precious by us. Eretz Yisrael, Hebrew, Yiddish. We can't make idols of them. We cannot make idols to worship these things. Because there's one thing we worship. There's one God, that's who we worship. Therefore, any kind of group, any kind of machloikis, that decides to say, I'm promoting this agenda, any kind of agenda, whether it's in language, or whether it has to do with Yiddish, or Hebrew, or Zionism, all of these things have to become submerged and subservient to our main goal, which is Tyre. And therefore, when you learn 
in, and because he was dealing here with the question of what language to teach children in. That was the issue at hand. The issue at hand is how do you set up schools? Do you set them up that they should learn in English, in Hebrew, or in Yiddish? And nowadays you will see three different groupings. You'll have many schools from where the more Zionist bent. We got to teach our kids Hebrew. The only way we'll be able to teach them Hebrew is if they do it. So it's Ivrit Vivrit, you know. Or, and, and they teach Chumash in the Bivrit. Ivrit Vivrit. These kind of things. Then you have other schools saying Yiddish. You got to teach Chumash in Yiddish. Otherwise, how are they going to know Yiddish? How are they going to be connected to the Jewish people if you don't teach in Yiddish? Others say, well, you got to teach in English. That's the language that they're most familiar with. So you have all of these questions. So do you teach in English? Do you teach in Yiddish or do you teach in Hebrew? And everybody can make a banner and a flag to say, this is my purpose and I have a great reason for it. And they all have great reasons. And you could promote each agenda and it sounds from Hashem is the only one that knows what's really motivating you. But when it comes to pedagogy as to how to teach, everybody comes up with their own spin on it. But he says, there's no way that I'm going to tell you right now what is the best approach? Because it all has to be submerged to our main goal. Whether we should teach in Ivrit, or in Yiddish, or in English, you can't make an agenda to promote a, a way of teaching. Because whether it's Hebrew or Yiddish, these are not gods for us. We don't make idols out of this idea. Ivrit, Yiddish, that's not what we're serving. This is not our goal. This is not our agenda. This is not what we're promoting. This isn't an idol for us. We don't bow down to these agendas. They should become independent agendas of their own. All we could say is that they're all important to our main agenda and our main goal, their means to the end. What is the end? Limud HaTayra. And if you lose sight of what your goal is, which is the agenda of Torah study, and coming close to Hashem through Torah study, you will lose it all. And therefore, whether it's very true, he's talking in the 1940s, to teach Yiddish to our children here in America is very important. But as to how to go about doing it, and when to start, and what grade to start with, and whether you could do it, that I can't tell you. Because that's irrelevant. The most important thing is bring children to Torah. Whatever promotes the agenda better, that's what you do. Whatever brings children to Talmud HaTorah more, that's the way to do it. Each place, each time, each, each era, each community has to decide with that goal in mind. What's going to bring you, do not lose sight of that goal as being the one and only goal. Bring children closer to Torah. That's it. Teach them Torah. And each community and each era and each place and time is going to have to determine how best to achieve that goal. Although Yiddish is important, but it has to be submerged in this one all-important goal. There is no other goal at all. The Kivin Shein Zeikra Torah. Since this isn't a goal, I can't tell you fast and set rules for this. From this it will come out that we have to understand that Limud Torah cannot be in a political partisan fashion. We cannot politicize the study of Torah. We can't make agendas with the study of Torah. You can't say, I'm from the Yiddish party. I'm from the Zionist party. I'm from the Hebrew promoting society. I'm from the feminist one. You can't make agendas for Torah. 
is only Torah. Because all parties, all political parties, have to view their politics through the spectacles of the Torah that we have from generation after generation. Torah is not subservient nor dependent on what people think is the right approach. That has to be the makor, the source and the end goal to all of our opinions, to all of our hashkafas, our philosophies, our goals, our matars, our deus. Therefore, by us, has to be above and beyond political parties and partisanship. It has to be Torah should not be subservient. Torah shouldn't be used by different parties to promote their particular agenda. Those are human agendas. They have to be subservient to the Torah agenda. That's the only one that counts. You do not then demean the Torah by making it subservient to other forms and agendas. This is the opposite of the Goyesha approach to education, where each one has his own agenda. They have their own Ritzinus, and they have their own Nigias, their own particular biases and prejudices. And therefore, they're all human. And as a result, everybody has their own political view, and that's what they try to promote in their schools. Each day, each party, each political partisan politics you know, of each party, they're trying to promote their particular agenda into the schools, whether it's the Christian right, whether it's the liberal left, whether they're trying to promote tolerance, and the whole educational system becomes subservient, becomes subservient to their particular agenda. Why are they looking for a school chancellor? The, you know what's going on in New York the past five years. For five years, the entire school board and all the issues had nothing to do with reading, writing, arithmetic. It had to do with Heather has two mommies, daddy's roommate. Should we find someone that's tolerant? Should we find someone that's going to promote it? Should we find a liberal or conservative? Should he be black? Should he be brown? Should he be yellow? Should he look like the 80% of the kids from Harlem? Should he look brown? Everybody has their agenda. Well, we're black. We need a black school chancellor. Well, there's Hispanics. We need a Hispanic school chancellor. We need a liberal one. The gay lobby lobbies. Everybody's lobbying education. They're all playing with the minds of children. That's really what it is. Everybody's playing with children. Their own particular political view. And I'm not saying political views aren't necessarily ideological. It's only for power. But it's ideological views that they have and they're trying to inject into the school system and the school chancellor has to fit in with their particular ideology the way they plan on manipulating the children. We have to teach them tolerance. It, schools have become um, ex- laboratories for social engineering. And each particular social engineer wants his way of engineering the children. They're taking children and turning them into what they want them to be. You have to be this, you have to be that, tolerant, whatever it is. They're sacrificing children on the altars of their own particular ideology. They've all become social engineers. He says that's the way the going do it. And we know they do it like that. Chas to break apart into parties and say, this is my particular approach and I gotta make a school with that approach. And I gotta make a school with this approach. Whether right wing, whether it's left wing. Therefore he says Yiddish, Ivrit, Zionism, it's all nothing compared to the one altar which is the Torah. We want whatever is going to promote Torah and Torah values in the children that he could better learn it with. For that reason, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky says, teach children in the Mamalosh. Because since what we're interested in is that they should learn Torah, 
So don't use Torah as a crutch and a tool to promote something else, to promote Hebrew. You're then taking Torah and you're utilizing Torah to teach Hebrew. That's Alma of the Oretz. That's abandoning the Torah. But that's taking the Torah and utilizing it for a different agenda. You're using Torah as a tool. That's, that's, the, that's the worst kind of Shalol Shema. You're going to teach Torah to teach something else. You know who did this? Mendelssohn. Mendelssohn in his beer, when he translated the Torah into German, and he said so himself. And the reason why all the Gedolim, I shouldn't say all the Gedolim, but the reason why the Gedolim of the era, or most, came out very much against and put it into the and not to learn it, is because of what Mendelssohn himself said. Which is, Mendelssohn translated the Torah into German. So did Shamshin Fall Hirsch. He also translated into, into German. Rabsad Yagon translated into Arabic. Why is Mendelssohn worse than Rabsad Yagon and Rabshamshin Fall Hirsch? Because Rav Hirsch and Rav Sadiagon saw the Jews knowing only Arabic or only German. He wanted to teach them the Torah, so he translated them so they should be able to learn Torah. Mendelssohn did the direct opposite. He didn't like the fact that the Jews spoke a kind of a Yiddish, which is like a low-class German. He wanted to teach them the highfalutin, literate German. So he, and since Jews learn Torah, so he translated the Torah to German as a means that the Jews should learn a higher German. That was the essence of his translation. And he admitted it himself. That means in his era, people were able to learn Torah. Okay, he also said, the beer, there's a lot of other things in the beer as well. Some of it might even sound good. Some of it is brought down another farm. But his actual agenda was of reformulating Jews into something else. Into expressive Germans. Into literate Germans. That means he's using the Torah as a crutch, as a means, as an axe for something else. That's the Var Hashem Bozov, that's Alma of the Orat, that's also Tarasi, that's the equivalent of Lobir Chubatarat Same idea. And what's the fight against Zionism, secular Zionism? It was because they also wanted to reformulate the Jews into these sabras, these hardy, agrarian socialists. It was also engineering. They wanted to re-engineer the Jewish people into something else. They then took Zionism out of it, or nationalism, which is part of Torah, as a means of drawing the Jews. As Herzl himself said, he was willing to go to, to Uganda to make a Jewish state. They, the reason why he was outvoted was because they said, we'll never get the Jews to go to Uganda. The only place you could get them to go was to Israel. But they wanted to reformulate the Jewish people to something else. And they took the Torah, or parts of the Torah, to do that, to reformulate them. They took Hebrew, Loshon HaKodesh, and tried to reinvent it into a secular language. That's the only way you're going to draw the Jews. Zionism, therefore, independently is avoid this or in its trade. Even if you go with religious Zionism, but if you try to take something out of the Torah and make it its own agenda and its own purpose, that's also trade. If you do that with the Yiddish, it's the same thing. We're not trying to promote Yiddish. We're promoting the Torah. Yiddish, we love Yiddish because of its relationship to this. We love Hebrew for the same relationship and the land of Israel for that. But we don't have a separate agenda. So when we're teaching children, all this has to be subservient to the main goal of teaching children Torah. That's it. Nothing else. And therefore, there's no way of injecting your particular political approaches. Not like the guy. And therefore, he says, for example, we have to always retain what's the Iker and what's the tough, what's the main and what's the secondary. This is what we have to always retain. Every principle, every teacher has to always bear it in mind. For example, he gives, he says, let's say you have a safer, which pedagogically speaking is educationally very good. 
But in terms of destroying Torah and faith, it's bad. So he says, it depends what your goal is. If your goal is education and sharpening children, or is your goal promoting the Torah? Don't use such a safer if it's against it. Likewise, if you have a teacher who has Torah in your mind and he effectively gives off from himself to his children, to the children that he's teaching, he gives him Torah and Torah values. But he wasn't educated and doesn't have all the skills and he doesn't have the degrees. Pedagogically speaking, he doesn't have all those educational tools. You hire him. He's the one that you hire, not the person with the 50 degrees. You look at what is your main goal. There is no question in the mind of anybody in this room that if you want to promote Torah and Torah values and Torah study to children, you have to have separate schools. There's no question. I don't think anybody would deny this. Not one person that I know, not one male at least, women maybe would deny it, but there is not one man that I've ever met that holds that you could more effectively teach Torah to boys by having girls in the, in the same class. No one will say that. So what is your goal? Why would you set up a co-educational school if your goal is to teach Torah to children? Why? Only because you have to have another agenda which is watering the Torah down. And you're trying to social engineer your children to something or other. Why would you make a shul with two mechitzas and spend millions of dollars for what? What are you taking the Torah? Are you promoting Torah values? Is that your goal? Or are you subverting the Torah to promote some other value? A co-educational school is an ineffective tool to teach Torah. Someone was telling me the other day why he can't send his children to SAR. Because they don't have a Torah agenda there. That's not the Torah agenda. They don't work with a Torah agenda. There's something else there. There are schools set up with an Ivrit agenda. There are schools that are set up because... Our children, I remember Ramaz was praising themselves that 100% of our students go on to college. 100%, I got to tell you, Talzi Shiv is the counterpart. 100% of them don't go to college. Whatever it is. But this is, I'm going to send my children to a Jewish parochial school, a Jewish Ivy League school. Your agenda isn't Torah, it's something else. But we teach them a lot of Torah. And they'll deny it. And they'll deny that they're not teaching Torah properly. And there's no way you're going to be able to prove it to them. Because Shoaul Chachomim, Shoaul Neviim, Shoaul Malcheshores, no one's going to prove it. Only Hashem knows. Al Ozvom Es Torosi Shlobirchu Batorah Tchila. Only Hashem could say that. Because only He knows in the heart. I mean, I know it also, but I can't prove it. But I know instinctively. You know who has what agenda. You know what they're trying to promote. That's why I read you in the beginning this this vort, this, this article. It's a good vort. It's a good article. But don't you see throughout? It's rife with constantly promoting something else. It's using a Torah article, a Torah vort, to give a rub, to give a shtoch, to give a, you know, you know, you men, what you did, we're going to fix it up. It's a good vort. The Torah is there. I read you this article. It's called Torah Insights. And it is. It's a nice vort. Yes, the Bnei God, Bnei Ruvain didn't, you know, didn't uh, appreciate the land of Israel properly. And yes, the Bnei Slav God word Sadei, it's at Konius. But fine, so you have a nice word there. Say the word. But is your why did you write this Torah piece? To teach Torah or to push your agenda? That means you're taking Torah and you're making it subservient to your particular agenda. It's terrible. That's exactly why Eretz Yisrael is destroyed. Because of this article. Because of this Torah word is the essence of why it was destroyed. Shalom birchu Torah What do you mean? 
says, Someone else that would read it superficially. You ask the Chachom, you ask the Nevi'im. They're all studying Torah. I don't know what the problem is. Hashem says they have an agenda. And they're promoting their agenda with my Torah. That's what the Pasik says in Yirmiyah. The Pasik says, They've forsaken my Torah that I gave them. It's interesting, the next Pasik. They're going after the ways and the dictates of their own hearts. After the bowels. What is Avodazar? Avodazar is also spirituality. But it's an idol that you're setting up. It's an idol that you're setting up that you're trying to make. This is my idol, my ideal. You've turned your, your ideal, you've turned it into an idol. And you're using the Torah for that. They're going after the dictates of their own hearts, their own agendas. And their ideals which they've turned into idols. That's what they're doing. And therefore, what they're doing is with my Torah. For that, you destroy Eretz Yisrael. If you're going to take the Torah, and Torah becomes something which becomes splintered, and everybody's using the Torah to promote a particular agenda, whether it's a right-wing one or a left-wing one. That's why I emphasize it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make a difference if your goal, if your intentions are to, to promote Yiddish, or to promote Frumkite, or to promote Eretz Yisrael, or Evrit, doesn't make a difference. We're educating our children not to become sensitized human beings with the way we define sensitized human beings, but to become people that know and value Torah. That's all we're trying to do. And whatever's going to effectively do that, that's what we do. Therefore, Rabbi Yaakov says, if the Mamaloshan is English, you got to teach Torah in English. At one point, when they know enough Hebrew, possibly, or know enough Yiddish, then you start doing it in Yiddish. Elementary schools, therefore, teach them in English. When they get to high school, inject some Yiddish. But don't water down the Torah and weaken it, and weaken their understanding of Torah by trying to promote Yiddish or by trying to promote Hebrew. At a certain point, maybe you could do it. But be goal-oriented for the Torah, not for any other goal. And therefore, you're going to make a co-ed school because you're trying to make the women feel good. You're going to make a shul. You're going to make... Someone was telling me a story about a youth minion where the boys and girls were sitting together in the North Nakshul. Does he complain? He says, yeah, but the girls are going to feel bad if they, uh, if they have to be bad in the They're going to feel bad. That's what you're educating them to ultimately realize this is the way it is. I mean, so you, you're trying to make a minion so it should all be feel good? It's like education nowadays by the guy. Everything's becoming feel good. They're, they're, they're turning around, you know, the multiculturalism, everything's becoming advocacy education. You rewrite history in order to make you feel good to promote a certain group. It's not affirmative action over here. We're not trying to make people feel good. We're trying to get them to understand Torah concepts. So if you're making a minion to make girls feel good, and you're going to make a shul, and you're going to use halachas, and you're going to design it with mechitzas this way and that way and the other way, and balconies and spend millions of dollars to, to show our feminist sensitivities, or to attract the women and to make them feel good, is that what we're trying to do? We're taking Torah and we're going to reduce it to the level of somebody else feeling good? We're going to make our educational institutions and educate our children in a manner that, well, I mean, the girls are going to feel bad if the boys aren't in the thing and therefore we got to do it and everything's even Stephen and everything else. But are you promoting Torah? Is this the most effective way of teaching Torah? Or is this the most effective way of promoting your particular miflaga, as he calls it, your political party or your particular views and your partisan views on things? That's what that's what that's what Ruben was saying.
the clarity of vision that he had over here. He was willing against the right wing, against the left wing, didn't make a difference. Didn't make a difference. It's not a question of whether it's Yiddish or... Don't promote your particular party. Promote Torah and promote Torah alone. You'll never be able to prove it with anybody because that's what I said in the beginning. You're a, you're a captive audience so that, and you're hostages. That's why I could say it all to you. But if, we, if it wouldn't be the case, what do you mean I'm doing it for this and this is the Torah and the Torah held like that and you're wrong. It'll go on and on. You'll never be able to say any of this over to people that are partisans. And that's what made me think of, as I said, there were, there were several factors involved in why I decided to do this. One of them is what, was what we were learning the other day in, in Mishnah Megillah. The Mishnah Megillah says that in the time of the Mishnah, one person made a bracha in the beginning of the Torah, one person made a bracha at the end of the, of the Torah. And in the middle, no one made brachas. Came the time of the Gemara, they saw that, hey, people might come in the middle and they'll think that you don't have to make a bracha before. You don't have to make a bracha before. So, you know what? Everybody's getting an Aliyah has to make a bracha before and after so that people should learn that, that when you do the Torah and you say the Torah, you have to read the Torah, you have to make a bracha before and a bracha after. That reminded me that all these women's minyam, they're trying to keep the halacha, so they lay in the Torah without a bracha. But symbolically, that's exactly what they're doing. They're trying to keep the Torah and learn the Torah and read the Torah and everything else, but without the bracha before and after. The bracha before and after represent that the Torah by you is the goal, not some other agenda. And what they're doing is they're making their minyan for a particular agenda. This is a subtle point, and it's perhaps impossible to ever prove what motivates a person. Only HaKadosh Baruch Hu knows what lurks in the hearts of people. Only HaKadosh Baruch Hu is able to be boichim. That's exactly what the Pasuk is saying. Mi ho'ish ha'chochem v'yovin zois. Who could prove this? Not the Chachomim, not the Nevi'im. Asher diber pi Hashem v'yagido. Al mo'av do'ar, it's v'yomer Hashem. Only HaKadosh Baruch Hu is able to say. Because who knows what lurks in the hearts of persons, in the hearts of people. Dovor zeh, nishal ha'chochem l'nevi'im l'malachi ha'shores. They couldn't answer it until HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself answers this. And as Rabbeinu Yoyinu says, Vadai oiskin hoyu b'Torah tomin. They studied Torah. They did the mitzvahs. Therefore, Chachom and Nevim couldn't answer this on Moav Doritz. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Shehu Yodeya Mamake Halev. He saw that with all the Torah learning, they weren't mvorich b'Torah. In other words, the Torah wasn't choshev in their eyes. They had another agenda. They were mezalzel in Berchas HaTorah.